Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff, and I am one of the leaders here at the church. And I want to ask a question as we get started with our time together. Have you ever heard the phrase, "Um, God will not give you more than you can handle? Have you ever heard that? Me too. I remember hearing that as well. In fact, if I could confess something to you, I I probably have shared that to some people that I know. I've sat across the table from friends of mine, maybe even family members who are going through really difficult situations. And I've, I've said to them, it's going to be okay, man, because God, I know God, right? I know him. <laughs> I don't talk like that. <laughs> I think I do, actually. But I, 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 I have said things like, well, God won't you know, give you more than you, you can handle. Um, th- those are phrases that we carry around with us sort of in our culture. And, and I wonder, though, if those phrases are, in fact, true. Do you ever catch yourself saying things that maybe aren't, in fact, true? They sound quite biblical, so we look to the Bible for a scriptural basis in them. But would it shock you to know that that phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle, has no scriptural basis? That You can look through all of the library of scripture, and you will not find it. What you will find is a verse I want to share with you that was sort of my life verse. Um, That's weird language, I know, but like um, Christians are are peculiar people, just so you know. And oftentimes we'll get, we'll we'll latch onto a verse or piece of, a portion of scripture in the Bible that means a lot to us and we'll hold on to it for a long time. So when I, when I became a a young Christian, I started reading the Bible for, for myself. You guys read the Bible for yourself, right? Uh, Yes, the answer is yes, we read the Bible. But I remember getting to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians and I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, this particular verse that I'm going to share with you, but it stuck with me. It became like a mantra of sorts to me. And, and you'll see why after I read it. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Amen. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability or strength. But with the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, that sounds kind of like God won't give you more than you can handle, yes? But that's not what it's saying. And to truly understand what this verse is saying, one simple verse taken out of an entire book in the New Testament, it actually means something a little different. And to understand what it means, we have to look sort of to the context of what's happening. So just give me a moment to to break down the the context of what's happening here. There was a man, he was named Paul, the Apostle Paul, we call him. He wrote this letter we call 1 Corinthians to a group of Christians in a city called Corinth. Makes sense, yes? 
You need to understand something about Corinth. Corinth was at a, 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 a cosmopolitan-type city. It was between two seaports, so a lot of people came and went. A lot of commerce went. A lot of wealth came and went through this city. And a lot of people came from a myriad of different backgrounds and a myriad of different places. And these people used to worship gods and goddesses, not the God of the Bible, but gods and goddesses in a myriad of different ways. So if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll hear on repeat these things. Um, Issues of sexual immorality, temple uh, sacrifice, um, idolatry. Uh, They had these things called temple prostitutes. Huh? All of this stuff was used as part of their religious service towards their gods. Then the message of Jesus Christ, hallelujah, through the apostle Paul makes its way to this Grecian city called Corinth. And people begin to forsake the false gods and begin to follow the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ. Yay, that's happening. But as it happens to them and even to us, oftentimes when you and I decide to follow Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, to become a Christian, to become born again, whatever language you like to use, you and I are thrust into a similar situation that they were in, that they're still around all of their old friends and family members. And even though they're Christians, and even though they're trying their best to follow after Christ, they are seeing all of the drunkenness and the sexual immorality and the sacrifices and the, hey, temple prostitute, how are you today? You're seeing all of this stuff taking place, and they're feeling pulled towards those things. Paul learns of this, and he writes them a letter and just encourages them, listen, friends, the temptations that you feel, it is not uncommon to feel that. Let's look here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, he says. All of us face temptations. All of us, when we say yes to Jesus, are going to feel the pull to our old way of life. Does anyone want to confess that in this room today? You don't show me your hand? Just nod at me? Text me? Whatever you want to do? Yes, that's us. That's what we do. And what Paul is saying, this is not an uncommon thing. In fact, if you were to read the Old Testament books about the Israelites, this is lather, rinse, repeat stuff for them. They follow God, fall away from God, repent to God, and then follow God, to then fall away from God, to then repent, to then follow God. It's called the cycle of apostasy, and it is over and over and over again. But he says it's a common thing. The Israelites struggled through temptation. You know who else struggled through temptation? Jesus. Jesus himself was tempted to sin. And what Paul is trying to intimate to them is that, in fact, you do not have to, to, be, uh, to sway towards sinful behavior. You can overcome it because of what Jesus has done for you. This verse is about that. It's about turning to their old way of life. They had been told to forsake their old way of life, and yet something kept drawing them back to it. He says, nothing will overtake you. God has overcome this. this that's completely different than God won't give you more than you can handle, yes? Although this is the verse that most people use to support that sort of proverb-esque thing, right? There's other ones. How about this? God only helps those who help themselves. Remember that one? Spoiler alert, not in the Bible. I'm just throwing it out there. What I want us to know, not only does that thing not have any scriptural basis, I'm going to argue it's not even true. It's not even true that God would never give you anything that won't overcome you, that God won't give you more than you can handle. Can I just lovingly say this to you? I think God would very much like to give you things that you can't handle. (laughs) I know it's true. Because here's why. If you can handle it, 
Like if you can manage it, if you can muster through it, then you in fact don't need him. You don't need him if, if you can handle it. So why would God allow that to go on? He has a whole world filled with people who don't need him because they're handling everything without him. He's, he'll just check out. No, that's not, who, who, that's not the God we serve. God, in fact, does allow us to be overcome by things. He, he does allow us to be overwhelmed by things. And in fact, I'll even argue it is in his great design that we are overrun by life sometimes so that we might seek him and find him and know him and see the trajectory of our lives changed forever. I'll argue this, that there's in fact spiritual experiences that you and I have have yet to have yet because we have yet to be overcome by life yet. That there are things that need to run us, this sounds terrible, but we need to be run over sometimes to experience some of these things. We need to get to a place of our end that we might seek out the Lord. Now know this, it doesn't always have to be that way. You can actually seek the Lord without coming to your end. Would you say amen? (laughs) But some of us are, what do, what do they say, um, are thick-skulled? I mean, some of, not all of us, just a handful of us here in the front row. Raise your hand, Joe. You're excused. <laughs> no, I think it, it would... I want to say a word, and you're going to laugh when I say it, but I can't think of another one. It, it would behoove us to, to be overrun sometimes. It, it would benefit us to, to see um, the bankruptness of our own estate to then look towards God for help. Today, I, I just pray for us that we would receive that message. I want to share the story of, of three kings. It's not a Christmas message, but three separate kings that I want to talk about. Um, but before I do so, would you, would you pray with me? God, would you open our eyes? Could you come and speak to us through your Holy Spirit in such a way that it would would truly make sense to us? This this false notion that you would never give us anything that that would be too much for us, um, it needs to be dragged out into the street and have a bullet placed inside of it, Lord. We don't need that sort of false belief around us. We need to to know who you are first and foremost. So we pray... uh, through Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would speak to our minds, open our eyes and our ears so that we could receive everything that you have for us. God, may we be people who are quick to run towards you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In December of 1955, this is long before most of you were born, um, a young pastor, 26 years old, by the name of Martin Luther King Jr., was, was thrust into the national spotlight as he became the de facto leader of a group of people, African Americans, in a city called Montgomery, Alabama, who chose to boycott the city's bus system. Martin Luther King did, in fact, did, did not ask for this leadership position. It was really, truly given to him. A, a few days before, four days before the boycott started, uh, a person named Rosa Parks, you might remember, was arrested on a city bus. She was sitting in her seat. The bus was separated into two different seating arrangements. The back of the bus was for African Americans or blacks, and the front of the bus was for white people. And, and Rosa Parks was, in fact, sitting in one of the seats labeled for blacks. 
But as the bus began to fill at every stop, it was required that when the bus came to capacity that the blacks were supposed to stand up and make way for the whites to give them a seat to sit. And as the bus filled up, the person next to her got up and made room for a white, and the person next to her on the other side made room for a white person. But Rosa Parks just decided this day, December 1st, 1955, to not move. The police were called. She was handcuffed and dragged down to the police station. And there's a, a famous photo of her being um, fingerprinted at the jail. And four days after this, Martin Luther King and another, a group of other uh, African-American leaders in the city decided to boycott the city's bus system. You have to know this, at this point, 75% of all bus riders were in fact African-Americans, and they thought the best way to fight against this is just peaceably. We're not gonna raise up arms, we're just gonna say no to the things that the city offers, and so they began to boycott. It wasn't long before the economic uh, uh, issue was felt to the city. It wasn't long before this became a a very difficult problem for the city of Montgomery. In fact, this boycott, they only assumed would last a couple days. Dr. King himself believed this. He thought that the boycott in Montgomery would be but a few days long, but days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. Months became a year. This this boycott lasted for 380 days. African-Americans all through the city decided to walk to and from work, some of them walking over 12 miles a day for over a year refusing to give any money to the bus system. In the the height of this economic strain that was upon the city, phone calls began to come to Martin Luther King. This is back in the day when you would actually put your phone number in a phone book. What? (laughs) Like seriously, would you even consider that these days? No, I'll be very honest with you. If you call me and I don't have your number in my phone, I don't answer it. I love you, but I don't know who you are, right? Leave a message, I'll call you back, I'm just saying. At the height of the economic strain, threats begin to be levied towards Dr. King. Because he was the de facto leader of the group, all of the threats came his way. And they all sounded the same, the same refrain. Knock it off, stop the boycott, we're going to hurt you, whatever, whatever. At one point, he was receiving over 40 plus phone calls a day. At his home, with his wife and his children. 40 plus, that's one every 36 minutes, if you can fathom that. You can't even get through dinner without the phone call interrupting your family time. One evening, late in January of 1956, the boycott's been going about uh, almost 60 days or so, just under two months. A, Martin Luther King was at a, a, um, a meeting with other leaders, and they were strategizing how to continue to do some other things and you know, trying to just continue and encourage one another to continue with the boycott and, and all of this. And he, he strides home at about 11.30 or so at night, late at night. He sees his family's asleep. He kisses them. He makes his way to the kitchen at around midnight when the phone rings. And he answers the phone. And, and through the earpiece, he hears the, the, the vitriol and the refrain that has become all too common for his life. If you don't leave this city, Martin, we're, we're going to kill you. If you don't stop this boycott, we're going to kill your family. Do you understand what we're saying to you, Martin? This young pastor, again, I mentioned he's 26 years old. I mean, what were you doing when you're 26? I'll just throw that out there. He is thrust into the most grave situation you could possibly imagine for any 10 people to endure, let alone one person. 
This idea that God would never give you anything that, you, that wouldn't overcome you or too much, too much for you to handle is so, is so absurd because in this story we see the weight of the world coming down upon one man. When Martin Luther King heard the voice on the other end of the phone, fear surged through him and he hangs up the phone, makes his way to the coffee pot and puts on a pot of coffee at midnight. As he sits in his chair at the kitchen table, um, he recounts a story in his book, Stride Towards Freedom, that um, describes the most profound spiritual experience the man had ever had in, in the entirety of his life. And I would argue he would never have this experience had he not been overcome in life. I'll read these words from his own book, which is so you know, you can buy this book on Amazon today for under 12 bucks. I bought it this weekend. I bought the audiobook. sorry. And I've been, I've been listening to it the last two days. I was listening to it on my way into church this morning. Dr. King writes about this situation after he hangs up the phone and says this. He said, I was, I was ready to give up with my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. And with my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and I prayed aloud. He spoke to God. He says, the words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I said, I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But God, now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers, he said. I have nothing left. And I've come to this point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, he says, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. Now, pause here to consider. 26-year-old pastor of a church, he's already gone through seminary, he's a PhD candidate. The man knows a thing or two about God, yes? And yet this moment drove him to a place where he was able to experience the divine in such a way that it marked him forever. I'd never experienced God like this before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying to me, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. He said, almost at once, my fears began to go, my uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. Fast forward three days from this exact evening, Martin Luther King was at another leadership meeting when word came to him that a, a person had run up to his house, thrown an explosive device onto his porch and, and drove away, and his house was blown up. His family was home but survived, barely, and the word comes to Dr. King that your house has just been uh, uh, bombed. And, and, he, and he continues with this. He says, when I caught word that... Um, Strangely enough, he says, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. My religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. If it were true that God would never give you more than you can handle, Martin Luther King Jr. would never have gone to God at that kitchen table that night. I mentioned before, he did not desire this position upon himself. In fact, on at least one occasion, we know that he tried to resign from leadership. <laughs> but the people around him took a unanimous vote to keep him in leadership. <laughs> like, uh, uh you go first. It's like the haunted house, really. <laughs> He's like, I'll follow you. <laughs> 
But do but you hear what's happening? So tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's an observance of his birth. And I know it doesn't fall on his birthday this year, but, but I want you to know that our, our nation, the trajectory of our nation was changed. Now, we're not fully there yet. You know that. But, but it has changed because of this moment that a man who was overcome with life reached out to God, audibly spoke to God, and prayed to him. And God manifested himself in such a way that it calmed him and gave peace to him um, so that he could do the thing that God had called him to do. Can, can I say this to you? That you and I um, have an opportunity for the exact same thing. But it requires of us to get to that place where we are desperate for help outside of who we are. There's something we need to understand. Whatever we can do is not enough to, to rectify this situation. Whatever we can do is not enough to change the situation. Nothing we can do can bring the level of peace that will carry us into this thing that God has called us to. You and I need to understand this. We can't believe garbage like God will never give you more than you can handle. There's another king I want to tell you about. His name is King David. He's a character from the Bible. The ancient story reads something like this. David was a shepherd boy, one of many brothers and sisters. And he's out in the field one day when a prophet, a guy named Samuel, shows up at his house. And what's, what's interesting, the backstory of all of this is the people of Israel, the Israelites, had wanted a king. They wanted to be like all of the other nations who had kings. But see, God's people were destined to be different. God wanted to lead his people himself. He didn't want them to have a king. But the Israelites, like most two-year-olds, said, we want a king. And so God, <laughs> God, the Bible tells us, relented and gave them a king. This king that God gave them was a man named Saul. And Saul's the first king of Israel. But before long, Saul turned wicked. He turned against the Lord. In fact, God pulled his hand off of Saul and said, I will give you a king, but I'm going to look for something a little different. I'm going to look for a man after my own heart, and I'll establish him as king. Now back to the story of David. David is met by this guy named Samuel. Samuel pours a jar of oil or something on top of David, the young shepherd boy, and says, you're going to be king. Sounds wonderful. Know this, David did not ask to be king. David did not desire to be king. And here's one, one other thing you need to understand. There's already a king. And you know what happens when the current king finds out there's another king trying to usurp the throne? I get frustrated, and the king that was Saul desired in his heart to destroy David, who would take his throne from him. And again, out of nothing that David had done, Saul then levies an assault against him. And for years, he ran for his life. For years, he hid. He had to feign madness at one point. He had to fake himself. He had to hide in caves. He disappeared from his family, from his friends. Saul has eventually um, gathered an army of over 10,000 uh, soldiers um, against David, searching every crevice and valley in the land, looking for this soon-to-be King David. David had found himself um, surrounded by about 400 other people. These other people were just outcasts from their societies, and they'd found themselves attracted to David. So David's uh, a de facto leader, if you will, much like Martin Luther King Jr., of about 400 people trying to survive, and here comes King Saul with tens of thousands of infantry to find him. One point, David is hiding inside of a cave, and it appears that his entire life has overwhelmed him. In this moment, David writes a poem. We call it a psalm. 
It's Psalm 142 in your Bible. If you have a Bible with you, we'll put the words up on a screen. You can follow along there as well. But David writes this psalm about his experience of having been thrust into leadership by God, not by his own desire, and the challenges and the difficulties that he's having. To be very honest with you, this is, this is the same situation that Dr. King is facing uh, centuries later. Verse 1 of Psalm 142, he says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaints before him. I tell my trouble before him. It says that with his voice, he cried out to who? To God. Okay, I, I didn't want to like do steps one, two, and three, but if we could just put steps together, doesn't that seem to be the, make sense to be the first step that when we find ourselves overwhelmed in life, when we seem to have been given more than we can handle, who should we talk to about it? We should talk to God. That's the answer. That's the answer. Yes, we, we talk to God about it. Yes? So stop calling me. Why? I'm not him. I'm not. I mean, I mean, that sounded wrong, right? I mean, sure, sure. It's okay to seek wisdom from friends. I'm a, I'm a friend. Seek wisdom from godly friends. I'm a godly friend to you. And I, I might be able to push you towards the truth that is in scripture and, to, and, and, and help you see God will come through in the end. I promise you, I've never seen him let anyone down, ever, myself included. What you should do is you should go to God. You should ask him. You should talk to him. And and both David the king here and Martin Luther King Jr., they both understood an audible request was all that was necessary. They began to just speak. Lord, this is too much. This is too much. I, I can't handle anymore. And, and God began to move in the situation. We keep reading. He says in verse 3 that my spirit faints within me, but you know the way that I should go. Something inside of David is, is holding on to the truth. Do you ever have that moment in your life when everything seems lost to you, but for whatever reason, there's this, this static line connected to Jesus that nothing in your life can shake or break. It, it feels no bigger than a fishing line at some points, but it has connected you to the truth that is in Jesus. And he begins to speak from that position. He begins to speak, not so much that his life is, is really bad, but he goes, I know that you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden traps for me, but you know. He goes, I look to the right and I see that there is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. Nobody cares for my soul, he's arguing. And so I cry to you, O God. I cry to you, O Lord, for it says, um, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Hear my cry, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. He hears the marching footsteps of an infantry seeking every crevice for him. This is not a weekend's trouble. This is years of his life. Everywhere he stepped, he saw the eyes darting his direction, wondering if he was the one Saul was looking for. You can certainly imagine the bounty that had been placed on this young shepherd boy to be king. Every place he went was terrifying to him. Verse 7, he asks God, 
to bring him out of prison. Think about that. His life had become so entangled with fear of being seen, of being caught, that he imprisoned himself in a, in a cave to hide out for all he could assume would be the rest of his days. His life had become a prison to him. Bring me out of this prison so that I can give thanks to you. The righteous will one day surround me, for you will, will deal bountifully, bountifully. I'm not even going to try to say it a third time. <laughs> You're going to be good to me. Fast forward in the story, Saul is eventually killed. David does assume the throne, just as God had said he would. David becomes the greatest king the nation of Israel had ever known. He's able to do more for that kingdom than any other kings combined. He's still regarded as the greatest king they've ever seen. He did not ask for this position. God placed it before him. But he had a moment when he was overwhelmed in life. And in that moment, he leaned on God. I argue that is what God was pointing to when he says, I will choose a man who's after my own heart. That he'll choose a man who knows his, um, his resoluteness does, exists outside of him and rests on God, the creator of everything. Even though Martin Luther King Jr. had enemies who were trying to murder him, even though King David had enemies who were trying to kill him, God was able to save them. Would you agree? And this brings me to my third and final king that I want to talk about. And it's a king that you and I know or should know intimately. His name is Jesus. And you and I, whether you know it or not, we all are... We, we all have a similar enemy. The enemy, and this will shock many of you in the room if you're new to this whole Christian faith thing, but the enemy that you and I all have is in fact God himself. Did you know that? That the Bible instructs us that, that we are born into this place of iniquity. This King David, he writes this in Psalm 51. He says, I was born into sin. From sin, I come into the world. We all are born into sin. And you know what that means for us? That we are all enemies to God. And the converse is true. But not only are we enemies to God, but he is an enemy to us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are objects of God's wrath. Wrath. The creator of the universe stands in opposition to you and to me. And why? Because of the sin in our lives. And I need you to know this. This is not just the sin of action. This is the sin of condition. It's inside of us. We are by our very nature sinful people. And we have an enemy that is God. The Bible tells us we are appointed once to die and to then face judgment. In that moment, God will judge guilty. And if you are standing as an enemy of God, you will cease to know Right, God's love and care in anything. But in our desperate state, much like Dr. King and much like David the King, we too can cry out to God. God, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with sin. I don't want to sin and I sin. Anyone? I mean, we're all pretty good at discipline for a weekend or two, a year maybe. But at some point we falter, at some point we fail and we, and we slip up. And know this, this isn't just for the adults in the room, this is for little ones too. I shared this in the first service and I shared this many times before. With those little babies that are so cute and precious and smell so like baby, like they're so, they, they're sinful. They have little dark hearts inside of them. 
Don't you talk about my baby like that. You, you want an enemy? <laughs> but it's true. Those precious gifts of life from God himself, um, left to their own devices, grow to be wicked and cruel people. If they're not trained in the admonition of the Lord, they'll find a wicked path to go. And they don't even have to get old to do that. Two-year-olds know how to cheat and steal. My youngest daughter was in the first service. I didn't want to embarrass her, but I did anyways. <laughs> but when she was two years old, I remember finding candy wrappers behind the couch all the time. And one day I pulled Reagan aside. I said, Reagan, have you been getting candy out of the kitchen and eating it without permission? And she stiffened her back and she said, nope. <laughs> I did not teach her to lie. Her mom maybe, but not me. <laughs> Is she here? My wife, is she? No, no. just know this. It, none of us taught her how to, she knows how to do it. It's in her. It's in us. She stole, she lied, and she tried to hide it when she was caught. This is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. What have you done, God says to them? Have you eaten of the tree that I forbid you from? And they come up with some story about it. Sin is inside of us. Because of that, we are an enemy to God. And at the end of our days, we are sunk. But there's a king. His name is Jesus. He's the son of God who comes to earth and he willingly gives his life for us. He would put his life on a cross, let God pour out his wrath upon him who has not sinned, absorb the punishment for sin for your behalf and for my behalf. They bury him in a grave and on the third day, God raises him from the dead, accepting his sacrifice. And by faith, the Bible tells us, if we believe in that, God will make us new. God will rip out our heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, and it will beat with the lifeblood that is God himself, and we are new creations. No longer are we objects of God's wrath, but called sons and daughters. You... You and I will never get there until we see the desperate state of our sinful condition. If we walk around with this idea that somehow God will never give us more than we can handle, we will never find salvation in him. If we walk around with some idea that we can, we can do this on our own, that somehow we can procure our own salvation, that we can somehow do enough good to out weigh the bad in our lives. And when we stand before the great throne of judgment, we'll go, look at all the good stuff. And he'll go, doesn't matter. One sin erases everything. You too have been given a condition that will overwhelm you. It might not have overwhelmed you yet. There will come a day when it will overwhelm you. And you and I need to surrender all things to God in that moment. Stop believing we can do it on our own. Stop believing that we can fix. Stop believing that we can do this stuff. Can I confess something to you? It's like, yes, please. I'm, I'm, I'm in a really funky place right now. I'm really struggling with some stuff. The church here has taken on a building project that is just ginormous in scope. It's, it's um, incredibly big. I won't say we're hemorrhaging money, but we're spending money at a clip that I, I've, I've never experienced before. It's all planned, but it's happening. And I'm going, Rah! I'm freaking out. Anybody here sleep more than four hours last night? I'm jealous. 
Oh, to get four hours on a Saturday night. I mean, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by this. And, and I'm studying this stuff and I'm like, I'm looking for solutions. And here's my solution. <laughs> Pray for me. I'll just work harder. That's all it requires, right? I just need to grind it a little more. I just need to work a little more. I need to think a little harder. I need to consider, consult, and do some other things just a little bit more, and then it'll be fine. And what God is saying is like, hey, dummy. I mean, that's his pet name for me. But he's like, hey. (laughs) It's a thing. We're friends. He says, why don't you just let it overwhelm you and ask me for help, and then we can move on. And then you can have a great Saturday night and sleep about seven hours. Why don't you just get to that place, friend? So that's, that's where I'm at. Somebody asked this last week, Jeff, uh, it was interesting. I went to dinner with someone, and at the end of dinner, they said these words, how can we pray for you? I, I, yeah. I was overwhelmed by that. And I, I took a, mom, a moment of, of real honesty, and I said, you could really pray for God's wisdom in our lives. You could pray that we... Um, you know, aren't, whatever. We just laid it out before all the situation that's happening. In all of that, I began to understand this is what that's about. This is what Martin Luther King felt. I know it's not the same thing, but it's my thing. This is not what King David felt. It's not the same thing, but it's my thing. And you and I are having experiences like this as well. I encourage you. When you're overrun to seek God first, when you're overrun in life to seek his wisdom first. Martin Luther King Jr. had the most profound personal experience with God he's ever had because of his situation. If we keep trying to uh, medicate it away with prescription, drugs, alcohol, sex, food, second jobs. I mean, pick your thing, man. There's always something that's going to have a luster to it that'll drive you towards it. But I'm, I promise you at some point, those things will, will become dull. And the glory you place upon them, whether they, they be your spouse, your work, your house, your, your kids, at some point, they're, they're going to fail you miserably and you'll be left low. And in that moment, I just plead in Jesus' name that you reach out to Jesus. I was praying this morning that many people would come to faith in Jesus today. And I say that in some way that, like, I control it. (laughs) I don't. But I'm like, Lord, let these people hear the story that they're against you and you're against them unless they surrender. And, and, And it's not just for new believers, but it's for believers who've been on this path for many years. That we do well for a season and then we fall away and whatever, and God calls us back again. <laughs> I'm not looking at anyone in particular. But you know the story of your life that it, it's like lather, rinse, repeat the same thing over and over again. And I'm here to say God wants to break that today. And part of that is just understanding that we, we must be overrun sometimes. And we must understand that we can't help ourselves. We need to seek his counsel. Yes? That being said, I want to pray for us as we close. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for the gift that is Jesus, the King, the one who will rule and reign for all eternity. We thank you for him. 
And without him, God, there's nothing that we can do on our own that has any lasting impact either in this world or in eternity. God, I pray that we seek your wisdom, your guidance, your protection, your, your strength. The Bible talks about your arm not being too short to save, not being too strong to save us. It, in any of life's situations or circumstances, God, you can help us. And so we come to you today, some of us for the first time, and we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you are the Lord, that you were raised from the dead, that you gave your life for us. And by faith, we believe, God, that you're making us new, that we have been adopted into the family of God. We are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. We are now part of you. God, I thank you for everything that you're doing for us. For those of us who've been Christians for a while, God, would you strip out from underneath this anything that's um, holding up this idea that we can do it without you? (laughs) That we must be a people marked by the presence of your spirit, that we follow you quickly, that we discern your voice in the midst of chaos, that we lean upon you, and that you give us understanding. You give us direction and wisdom, God. We thank you for everything that you do, God. God, would you continue to be the rest of our time together as we yield the the rest of this service to you, that we yield the rest of our time, that we would um, celebrate the goodness of Jesus Christ, that we would declare to heaven itself where the angels would witness this and see the worship of Jesus go forward from this room, that Jesus, the Lord himself, would receive the worship that is due unto him for all of his labor for us. God, we do not miss what you've done for us. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.